Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. We're going to turn again in the scriptures to Daniel chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar is dead at this point, and the will has been read, and he has left a dreadful mess behind him. After a number of unsuccessful attempts to reign by members of his family, a man called Nabonidus is now the king. So immediately you say, how could that be the case? Because it says here, Belshazzar the king made a great feast. But it's a weird setup. Belshazzar is second in command to Nabonidus, a kind of a vice-regent, a kind of a co-equal king, a compromise solution as to who gets the estate when the old fella died. So in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 16, if you look a little bit down the chapter, when Belshazzar is making promises to Daniel, he promises him that if he does what he asks him to do, he says, Thou shalt be the third ruler in the kingdom. So there was Nabonidus, who's not in this chapter, and then there's Belshazzar, and then there would be the third ruler, whoever that would be wasn't going to be Daniel. And it seems that Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. If you look at the king's, the queen's words rather, in verse 11, she says here, There is a man in thy kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of thy father light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him, whom the king Nebuchadnezzar thy father, the king I say thy father, made master of the magicians. The fact that in verse 11 the queen and possibly the queen mother at that stage, the fact that she seems to talk about thy father and stress it over and over again would tend to give you the impression that he was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. What I want to get to is this. If Nebuchadnezzar's son was Belshazzar, then that means Belshazzar has been growing up in the royal palace and he has had a godly influence on his life. Nebuchadnezzar had placed the Hebrew boys into his education program and at that stage Belshazzar would have been a child. And if that's the case, he has grown up knowing about the God of heaven, the God of the Hebrews. He'd have been in the royal household when Daniel and the Hebrews refused the king's food. He'd have heard about the one true God, the God who made heaven and earth, the God who demands our total allegiance. He'd have been there when the king threatened to end the lives of all the wise men because they couldn't deal with his request to tell the king his dream and what it meant. He'd have learned that there was a God who could see right into the hearts of men, a God who was omniscient. He'd have been a boy when the king erected his golden statue, his massive idol, 
and he'd have no doubt heard the command given to the whole world to bow down to the king's statue and as a child of the royal house there is no doubt that his guardians, his nanny and the eunuchs who looked after him would have dressed him up and brought him out to the plains of Jura to do his act of obedience to the king. And later on there'd have been talk in the nursery Talk about the three Hebrews who'd refused to buy. The men who'd been cast into the incinerator and how they had survived. And guess what? The Son of God was in there with them. The God of the Hebrews looking after his obedient children. The powerful God who was always present. And then he would have witnessed his father's madness. He'd have seen his father being driven from the palace and living out in the fields among the cattle and the sheep with the rain pouring down on him and eating grass and behaving like a beast until his father confessed that the God of the Hebrews was his God also and repented of all his sins and trusted him and became a true believer in Christ. And all of this was going on right throughout Belshazzar's Childhood, God has been speaking to him. God has been gracious to him. God has been revealing himself to him. Now what I want you to think about is the fact that right throughout life God speaks to us through illness, through deaths, through events. Maybe somebody on the 12th day of July in the field handed you a little piece of literature, a gospel tract. Maybe you were sitting in a traffic queue one day in Belfast and there was a bus in front of you and it had a gospel verse in the back of the bus. Maybe you were walking or driving through the town and you heard a snatch of preaching from an open-air preacher. Maybe you were invited to come to church by a Christian neighbour. Gracious, godly influences on the lives of so many of us. Maybe the greatest influence of all is the privilege of being brought up in a Christian home. What a privilege that is. Taken to church, taken to gospel meetings taken to Sunday school, brought to the children's meeting, the times of prayer, being taught to read the Bible, learning the simple childlike instructions in the children's catechism. Reared under a godly influence, of course, is no guarantee of personal salvation. As Christian parents, we long to see our children and our grandchildren walking with God and we pray for them and we try our best to be a godly influence in their lives but we can't live their lives for them. And in time, they must come to the point where they recognize that they are sinners and repent and trust the Lord. And sadly, many do not like the covenant breakers that they are. They stubbornly resist the call of God. Like Belshazzar, many do it 
until it is too late. And they try the patience of God until suddenly and without warning they are required to leave this world and go into eternity. Face the God who is their judge with unforgiven sin on their account. An account that must be settled. And I think Belshazzar was that man. A man who had great privilege, not just the privileges of the royal household, but the privileges of one who knew that there was a gracious God with whom he could have a saving relationship. But like so many people with those privileges, he hardened his heart against the Lord. I want this morning for a few moments to see just how hard and how rebellious such a heart can be. A heart that has been influenced by a godly influence. Verse 1. It's an indulgent heart. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. This man who lived with such a godly influence. See his ball and his bodies and his binging. It was a great feast. I don't know what the occasion was for this splendid banquet, but there must have been something to celebrate, mustn't there? Maybe an anniversary was the excuse. Maybe it was a pagan feast in celebration of some of the false gods of stone and wood in their pagan pantheon of gods. And what a guest list he had. Look at the numbers and the status of these people. These were the important people of the land. These were the people who were the real influencers of their day. 1,000 members of the top class of society included in the guest list. And they drank wine. It says so specifically. In fact, it says that Belshazzar himself drank wine in front of them. I can imagine what that was like, can't you? Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousands. Can't you just see him? Can't you picture him in your mind's eye, standing up with bravado, drinking and drinking? I can hold my drink and he's lashing the drink into him. You see it in every bar in the country. You see it in every hotel, at every wedding do, at every reception. You'll see somebody who wants to drink himself under the table, or sadly these days, drink herself under the table, so that they can prove what a big man they are. And they'll have 11 or 12 pints of beer in them and they'll not be finished and they'll stagger out afterwards into Shaftesbury Square or into one of those streets in Belfast three o'clock in the morning young girls don't know what's going on around them young men vomiting in the street they drink specifically before others to be seen 
That's what Belshazzar is doing here. He's not hiding his indulgence. He wants to show people what a sinner am I. Strange because in ancient days the king wouldn't usually mix with his subjects. He'd be separate from them. And yet here he is, if you like, on the disco floor with a drink in his hand, misbehaving. Let's go back to the background for a moment because none of this is happening in a vacuum. We know from the Greek historian Herodotus that at this very moment the mighty Persian army under Darius is camped outside the city of Babylon. The Persians have already conquered the rest of the Babylonian Empire. And at this point they have besieged this city. So can you see what's happening here? Belshazzar the king is making his great feast and he's getting himself drunk stupid at the same time as his city is under siege. Why are they having a party? Again, I suggest it's bravado. They're convinced that the Persians can't conquer their city. They're convinced that the walls of Babylon are impregnable. And the river Euphrates runs right through the city centre. So there's no shortage of water. And Babylon at this stage, Herodotus tells us, has enough food in storage to last 20 years. So here's their attitude. Let's eat and drink and be merry. We have nothing to worry about. Belfast there is, or rather there was anyway, I don't know if it's still there, a restaurant called TGI Fridays. Have you seen it? It's in Victoria Square. Its name is tapping into the spirit of escapism. This modern idea that says, let's not worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. Just thank God it's Friday. We have lived in drudgery all week. And, and we've worked all week and we've gone to the office and we've sat at a desk or we've worked in a factory all week and it's Friday and we'll get out and we'll enjoy ourselves and we'll not worry about the future. Thank God it's Friday. So they go out and they party and they drink alcohol and they blot out the inevitability of what lies ahead. Not just the week that is to come, for they must return to the drudgery of the office. But what lies ahead, ultimately, the last great enemy that surrounds us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that that last enemy is death. We don't like to think about the fact that life is drawing to its inevitable conclusion. And that one day very soon we will stand before God and give account of our lives. We have hearts these days that thinks only of me and my pleasure and shut out the inevitability. Belshazzar, getting drunk stupid in front of all these people, blotting out the fact that the enemy is at the gate and that time is short, thinking that he's safe. 
But look at verse 2. Because he compounds his foolishness. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. I mean, let's think of this. Belshazzar is in serious trouble. The the Babylonian kingdom is, is finished. His life is coming to an end. A, a ferocious enemy is at the gate. What would you do in those circumstances? Wouldn't you be far better falling on your knees before God and crying out for mercy? Shouldn't you be seeking the face of the Lord for help and for deliverance? What did the psalmist say in that first psalm? He says, that I sought the Lord and his answer came. From fears he set me free. What do you do when in times of difficulty like that come? You fall on your knees before God and you cry out for the Lord. And the Lord will come and help you. But Belshazzar does the opposite. Instead of calling the lords and the politicians and the advisors and the high people together, instead of declaring a national day of mourning before the Lord, instead of calling for a day of prayer and fasting, he calls for the vessels that were stolen from the temple in Jerusalem to be brought to the feast. And he publicly blasphemes the name of God. He drinks from those sacred vessels. He openly despises God and his law. And the people who were with him join him. Not only did Belshazzar sin in this respect, but if you look at verse 3, it tells you that he encouraged others to do the same. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines drank in them. Sin spreads. And while they are sinning and blaspheming, they go even further. Further in the rejection of God, not only do they fail to trust him, not only do they shake their fist at the Lord and his people, but they deliberately and willfully turn their back on him and focus their worship on false gods. Verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood and of stone. Maybe they held an impromptu sacrifice. Maybe they sacrificed a child, for that was the way those gods were appeased. Maybe they sang songs of praise about gods that can do nothing for them. 
drunk out of their minds? Did they not realize that they were singing and praying and sacrificing to a lump of wood or a rock? Matthew Henry here comments, Immorality and impiety, vice and profaneness, strengthen the hands and advance the interests of one another. Drunken frolics were an introduction to idolatry, and the idolatrous ways were a shoeing horn to further drunkenness. Sin never gets better on its own. It always gets worse. Let's think about this for a moment, this background, because we need it for next week. Here's this man who's brought up, let us say, almost like in a Christian home. Brought up with a godly influence on his life. A father who late in life had turned to Christ, but he had seen the hand of God at work all the way through his life. A man who is trying God's patience. A man who has now turned from that godly influence. And even at a time when he should have been calling upon the Lord for deliverance and for help. At a time when he faces the inevitability of the end of his life. When he faces the enemy at the gate. He is still spurning the God who can help him, turning his back on God. And not only turning his back, but willfully and knowingly casting God's offer of saving grace back in his face. And in doing so, encouraging others to do likewise. And God willing, in our next lesson, we look at that very closely. And we see those events unfolding. And how we will be wise when the Lord calls us to respond to his voice. Not to turn our backs. Not to put it out of our minds. Not to cloud over the reality with the partying attitude of this life. But to face up to the inevitable and settle our account with God while we still have time to do so. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.